we see ourselves as small little you know individual beings but that's not the case at all we, we are capable of so much and i think now more than ever we have to doing everything we can to to protect the places that we love hello and welcome to the common ground podcast in a time of ecological and climate crisis of rising inequality and social injustice, it can all seem just a little bit overwhelming. We get it, and that's why Common Ground brings you the stories of those, driven by passion, who are striving fiercely to make our common home better for all who live here. Each week we'll hear from a new guest who'll tell us all about the issue that spurred them to take action, to help inspire you to create positive and meaningful change in the world. I'm your host, Chess Burnley, Geographer, environmentalist and concerned global citizen. It was such a pleasure to be joined this week by Cal Major, stand-up paddleboarder, ocean advocate and adventure seeker. Did I mention she's also a vet too? In 2018, Cal also set two new world records for stand-up paddleboarding, from Land's End to John O'Groats. She's the first and fastest person ever to do so. I hope you enjoy our conversation as we discuss plastic pollution, breaking world records and using her paddleboard as a vehicle to discuss positive mental well-being. Thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be here. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I wonder if you could sort of just start by giving us a rundown if people don't know who you are and I'd be surprised if they didn't for, for people to know a little bit about yourself. So my name's Cal Major and I am a vet. I'm a, a, a veterinary surgeon, but I've in the last few years been focusing more on um, ocean advocacy, so marine conservation and on protecting the oceans. I run a campaign called Paddle Against Plastic um, and have been over the last few years using stand-up paddleboarding expeditions as a vehicle to talk to people about um, issues that face the ocean so specifically plastic pollution um, and more recently these campaigns have been focusing more about the need to reconnect to our ocean in order to protect our mental health and well-being and also in order to drive a desire to, to protect the ocean so I'd say that my sort of main focuses at the moment are on mental health and ocean activism but more specifically where mental health and environmentalism intersect um, and where they're kind of joined through a connection to our natural world and a kind of love of our natural world and over the last few years with my paddle against plastic campaign i've taken on some um, stand-up paddleboarding expeditions so the first one in 2016 was stand-up paddleboarding around the whole of the cornish coast um, and I took that on very naively, uh, very, um, <laughs> very unaware of what was to come and envisaged Cornwall in the summer as having flat seas and sunshine and dolphins. Okay. And I thought I was going to get a six pack and it was going to be really fun. <laughs> and um, I was hit with three weeks, three weeks of unseasonably big waves and gale force winds and um, angry seals. So that was the first Oh my goodness me. But it didn't put me off. And the second year, the second year of the Paddle Against Plastic campaign in 2017, I stand up paddleboarded solo around the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And that was one of the most wonderful 
wonderful experiences I've, I've ever had being alone in nature for that amount of time and really connecting back to how it felt to be a part of that natural world um but it was also ridiculously tough and got into some very silly situations and, and really really um developed my respect for the power of <laughs> the power of the ocean and also felt quite an empowerment to actually what I was able to, to do in those situations um and then my most recent of the UK expeditions was in 2018 I stand up paddle boarded the whole length of the UK from Land's End in Cornwall to John O'Groats in the north of Scotland um and that was again looking at the kind of positive things happening the length of the UK to tackle plastic pollution but but more on that trip I developed this real appreciation of um, the fact that if we want people to protect our environment and to come on board with these environmental campaigns then they have to have their own personal meaningful connection to nature otherwise we can't expect people to understand the importance of, of, of protecting um, protecting our oceans it's an incredible story oh my goodness me a whistle-stop tour of what you've done in, uh, i mean i don't think we've even touched on sort of half the things you've done in that time but um those examples alone that you've picked out are sort of absolutely extraordinary I wonder whether you could take us back and, and sort of paint the scene for us, because my understanding is that uh, you're a veterinary surgeon, but then you also have this sort of deep passion and love for um, the ocean and, and I guess plastic pollution as a problem came alongside that. Mm. Where was it that you started to engage with those issues? So I, I had my place at vet school, Edinburgh Vet School, I was 18. And I had a gap year before I went to uni and I decided I was going to go to Australia to learn to scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef. And I'd um, done bits of surfing in the UK. I really enjoyed surfing as well. So I thought I'll go to Australia and, and really sort of hone my surfing skills and learn to scuba dive. And I can still remember that first time scuba diving, the first moment that I was able to breathe underwater and just seeing the multicolored corals and I, I can just so vividly remember the fish there was fish there there were fish there sorry that were that were bigger than I was Gosh. and I remember seeing my first turtle and just being captivated by how they danced in the water and I just fell completely in love with that environment um, and with how it made me feel how I felt when I was there the, the peace the all that I felt and real deep love for that place and it sounds quite cheesy but I, I kind of knew from that moment that I wanted to dedicate my life to protecting the oceans yeah. um, but I went to uni in Edinburgh to study to be a vet and throughout my five years at uni kind of looking into the marine side of things how I could be a marine vet and none of it none of the kind of more commercial stuff really sat well with me so I was very kind of curious when I was at uni about how I could use my veterinary skills and my degree in a more marine based field um but like with anything I think life just kind of got in the way and there's a really typical path that vets follow I decided to go down that route and I loved it I absolutely loved my time in mixed practice and for several years was working as a small animal vet I moved down to Plymouth actually I moved down to Plymouth to um to, to take on a locum position so locum's like the equivalent of a supply teacher this position was meant to be three months and I ended up staying there for about two years in the oh end because I just I just I loved it so I'd always wanted to kind of 
you know, go back to Australia and live by the sea and work with animals there. But moving to Plymouth in Devon helped me to acknowledge that actually that, that the wildlife and the ocean and everything that it gave me in Australia was available here in the UK as well. And that was me hooked. Um, and I was sort of working as a locum uh, in the days and then I was um, spending a lot of time surfing and I learned to stand up paddleboard. And as I was stand up paddleboarding, I, I was noticing more and more that the beaches that I was coming into were, were just covered in plastic. And the kind of passion for the plastic pollution crisis really hit me when I was up in, you know, we had, had a week off and I went for a, a camper van trip with one of my friends up to the Isle of Tyree in Scotland, off the west coast of Scotland. Yeah. And it was this tiny little island with very few inhabitants. And yet one of the beautiful remote beaches was you know was wading in, in plastic waste I was really struck every time I went to the beach after that every time I surfed every time I paddleboarded even going to really remote beaches on my paddleboard I was finding plastic and there wasn't much in the media at that point in time about it I was following a charity called Surfers Against Sewage so I um, volunteered with them for a while running community beach cleans and, and I'm still a, a rep for them still a regional rep for them but I was, I was running community beach cleans and I really loved that moment uh, the kind of light bulb moment when we were at a beach clean and someone would pick up a plastic bottle for example and connect the dots back to the plastic bottle that they'd maybe used the day before yeah. or you know the crisp bag that they'd had in their lunch that day and I realized that I wanted to use that kind of moment of connection to help deliver a positive message to people about plastic pollution because like I say there wasn't much in the media at that point in time and and everything that was there seemed very negative and doom and gloomy and so I really really wanted to deliver to people a positive message of actually this is what we can do because you know the beauty of the plastic pollution crisis is that every single person can do something positive about it um, so that's where my sort of paddle against plastic campaign started in terms of a sort of a light bulb moment where people realise that, as you say, it's it's a plastic bottle at lunchtime, it's a crisp packet, you know, it's a toothbrush and that could be theirs. You know, it, it really brings it home. But what I wonder whether you found that sort of living in coastal communities, whether that understanding is greater than, say, potentially a rural community, because people, I guess, forget that it's not just... The coastal communities that are responsible for plastic pollution everybody is responsible for it yeah definitely 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 and over the last few years we've seen the plastic pollution campaign and the, and the movement change loads and i would say now i mean i'm in a little bubble here in the southwest because everybody here or a lot of people let's say a lot of people that live in devon and cornwall are really connected to the ocean that's why they live here they love they love where they live because of the ocean and because we're here at the beaches almost every day and seeing this stuff we're perhaps a little bit more aware of the the impact that plastic can have on our environment so when I paddleboarded from Land's End to John O'Groats I specifically so it was about a thousand miles and I specifically took um, 200 miles of inland waterways as well so um, rivers and canals to look at what the plastic pollution situation was there and also what the connection people had to it because you know 80% of of litter that finds its way into the oceans originates from the land so like you said it's not just people dumping things on the beaches and then it getting washed into the sea it can be someone dropping a, um, a sweet wrapper in the middle of Manchester and you know uh, uh, it rains because it rains all the time in Manchester and then it gets washed into a canal and then it 
goes out into the ocean at the sea locks or you know things get washed into a river and it goes out um, from the river into the estuary into the sea and I was really really shocked at the amount of plastic I found in the canals and the rivers in um, inland really shocked because I think I'm also a bit kind of like I say, I'm in my bubble here and everybody, when they go to the beach, they clean up and people, you know, really seem to be understanding of it. And we see loads of businesses around the coastline, which are using less plastic because they've got that direct connection with the ocean and because they can see the plastic ending up on our beautiful beaches. But inland, I think that um, those dots aren't necessarily connected as well. Um, And certainly the response I had to... um, to my campaigns in land were, were a little bit different okay were, um, met a lot of people on on the canals who lived in canal boats and they seemed really connected to the issue and really really passionate about protecting the place that they live which is the canals because they absolutely love it and yet this there were people and this is not to shame anybody or kind of you know pigeonhole people but there were a lot of people who seemed not to have that appreciation or understanding and you know were, were actively littering or you know you you saw things at the canals which were quite obviously dumped there you know plastic bags with empty cans in and, and that kind of thing so it was a real eye-opener for me to go in inland um I mean one one morning um on the canals in Wigan I in the first hour of paddling only, I counted nearly 700 plastic Gosh. bottles floating on the top of the canal. Um, and we went back with a group of paddleboarders a, a few weeks after I finished. And um, within less than a mile of the canal, our paddleboards were all so heaped high, like absolutely heaped high of rubbish that we had to turn around and, and go and deposit all the rubbish that we'd found. There was just so much rubbish in the canals. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really important that we don't just um, kind of take this message to, to coastal communities and to ocean lovers, but that we help people living in land understand and appreciate that actually they can do something positive to help protect the oceans as well and to help people understand that all of us are connected to the oceans and that all of us can positively um, protect them. Something I I sort of had on my list was you know 2017-2018 the plastic pollution crisis really came to the forefront and you know within the past year or so the climate crisis has sort of risen in terms of the level of awareness you know with the development of things like extinction rebellion and sort mm-hmm. of significant climatic events yeah do you feel that the focus on the plastic pollution crisis is is slipping and is that something that you sort of see being in in your future that's a really interesting question um yes the climate crisis has definitely come to the forefront of people's um uh, awareness in the last year um I I think there are several kind of crises that our environment faces, but they are all very, very much interlinked. And I think it's dangerous to kind of label one as more important than the other. Okay, so we've got um, the climate crisis, which is also very, very much related to the, the plastic pollution crisis. Most plastic is made from, um, virgin plastic is made from fossil fuels. So in that way, it's intrinsically linked to um, to the climate crisis. The, the plastic pollution crisis is all about fossil fuels. I I read a really, really great report not so long ago. It was last year, actually, which was kind of, it, it ranked the the crises that our planet faces um, in order of the most pressing. And 
on top of all of those, you know, above climate change or um, above climate change, above plastic pollution was destruction of wild places and, and change of land use. So actually maintaining wild places, protecting wild places, which act as a sink for carbon so they can help mitigate the, the, the effects of climate change. Um, increased biodiversity, which is absolutely crucial. Um, they, that is the most important thing that we need to be focusing on. But of course, that's so related to plastic pollution because you know, if you're releasing millions of tons of plastic into the ocean, then that's going to be damaging habitats. Um, if you're increasing sea level, water temperatures in, in the ocean, then that's going to be uh, killing coral and re reducing biodiversity. And it's really, really important to take a step back and look at the big picture. And the big picture is that we are destroying our planet in several different ways. Um, our energy consumption, our fossil fuel consumption, our plastic consumption, our land degradation, um, and all of those come back to a disrespect for and an underappreciation of our natural world and how important it is um, for our survival. Yeah. And it's been proven time and time again that areas of the natural world which are protected by or cared for or managed by indigenous or local populations are the ones that have the best biodiversity they have the best protection and that's because those local populations are the ones that spend time there the ones that are in awe of those places the ones that love it and the ones that want to do everything they can to protect it so this all for me comes back to um, a disconnection from our natural world in our fast-paced society that, that we live in now and so i think the cure for all of this i mean yes we need ngos who are fighting the good fight yes we need businesses doing the right thing but we actually also need a mass reconnection to our natural world and that doesn't mean you know everyone go for a hike every sunday it means people need to start or we all sorry need to start really appreciating what it means to be a human within our natural world rather than seeing it as us and the natural world we are such a big part of it I wonder if we can just sort of circle back round because you sort of touched on your world record holding journey there I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about your experience and and what that was like yeah so I I think over the years of doing these expeditions, I've got very good at suffering and I've got very good at coping <laughs> through pain. Um, and so I knew that it was going to be very, very painful at times. And, and it was, um, and there was a lot of exhaustion and, you know, I did have to push through a lot of sort of physical barriers, but the mental hurdles were, were a big part of it as well. So, um, and I kind of, <laughs> If I looked at the whole trip in one go, you know, the whole kind of 1,000 miles in front of me, I think that would have been too overwhelming to kind of just get on my board and go. Yeah. Um, so what I did is I kind of broke it down into each day or each mile and kind of really kind of broke it down so that I only had to focus on what was immediately ahead of me. Um, and it was really hard. There were days when I wanted to give up so much and especially on the canals because of first of all the amount of plastic there but second of all um there was nothing to fight against there were no tides there was no wind on the canals really um and so it was just very very monotonous but when I was out on the ocean every day I had a tidal window of six or seven hours that I had to kind of um paddle within and some you know sometimes I'd have two tidal windows so I'd, I'd take two lots of six or seven hours on the water but most days I only had that that period of time to paddle in and so having that knowledge that if I didn't get to my destination in time the tide would start 
going against me and it would be a lot harder work and sometimes would be physically impossible to paddle against the tide kept me going and going and also I found that on all these expeditions because I've had a, a very very strong purpose and passion behind them that's really kept me moving so knowing that I was doing this uh, the London on a Groats trip I was doing it to, to talk to people about protecting this place that I love so much and also I was raising money for two mental health charities that really spurred me on and kept me going and um, I had a lot of support from people on social media and sort of helping out with them um, keeping morale up so it was a yeah it was really touching actually and you know people offering for me to come and stay the night and oh. offering to bring me food and so knowing that I wasn't alone was it was definitely a, a big part of it um but I think that being in an environment that I love so being in the ocean and trying to practice mindfulness in that environment had a had a big impact so really trying to kind of just be there in that moment not think too much um about the journey ahead not dwell too much about what happened but just try and enjoy what was going on there even if I was in a lot of pain or if I was absolutely exhausted I often found that I could um short circuit my sort of spiraling exhausted thoughts by just refocusing on sort of what was going on there and then and and I was able to experience some of the most wonderful um wildlife and sights and colors um so it felt like a, when I was able to practice mindfulness it felt like a real privilege rather than a chore to be there absolutely it's a, a really nice way of sort of reframing a situation you know an insurmountable yeah. problem but actually trying to sort of turn that into a positive um yeah. I can imagine was a re really big booster oh definitely yeah yeah it, it really was and and you know some days it I wasn't able to to do that you know some days I spent the whole day on the water crying or yeah. um, <laughs> wondering what on earth I was doing but um it, and, and oftentimes that was driven by pure exhaustion but um it's amazing what you can what you can push through when you just allow yourself to you know if you ever think it too much and think you know if I thought oh tomorrow that there's no way I can do another 30 or 40 miles like I'm, I'm absolutely drained I can't do any more but actually rather than telling yourself what you can't do just I just kind of got on the water and and gave it a go and once I was in those situations and didn't have the option not to do it it's yeah absolutely amazing what your body and your mind are capable of yeah compared to what your mind tells you you're capable of there's a real disparity there between between the two between your perceived limits and and your real limits um, and that was really interesting to 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 figure out and then you you get to the end what does that feel like can you put that into words I felt a lot of things when I got to the end. I felt a lot of relief um, because the last stretch had been uh, very worrisome for me because the, the last, very, very last stretch was around um, Duncansby Head, which is a really big headland if there was a lot of tidal movement there. So the tides there were, were quite gnarly. They were basically big, fast tides going straight out to the Shetlands and I had to kind of time it perfectly right so that I could nip around the corner rather than go out to Shetland. <laughs> yeah. And then... Um, so um being able to get to John O'Groats felt like a, a massive wash of relief but I also felt a bit gutted because I'd really enjoyed the last week of being on the water with the sunshine and the animals that northeast coast of Scotland was the most special part of the UK for me because of all the wildlife so I felt a bit kind of gutted about that about that bit ending um and also I didn't really know what to do with myself so for, for 
about three or four nights afterwards, after I'd finished, I woke up in um, a panic every night because I'd been having dreams that I'd stopped, but I still had 10 miles left to go oh <laughs> and I would kind of stopped prematurely. And yeah, so it was, it was definitely a strange feeling. And the, the following months after finishing were really, really challenging. Um, for two months, I'd had a really distinct purpose and direction and challenge every day. And every day I'd had those endorphins of being on the water and the dopamine hit when I got to the end of every day and the sense of achievement and, and just the purpose. And yeah. then having finished, all of that disappeared. I was absolutely exhausted my adrenaline dropped I was in a lot of pain in my shoulders I suddenly had no energy to do anything no sense of purpose but also this kind of almost sense of anticlimax and um, I slipped into um, quite a deep depression actually for several months after I finished and reading up from some other people who've done big expeditions it seems like it's quite a, um, a common thing and only after I'd got through the depression which took over a year actually to to feel well again only afterwards did I realize that my body was going through a massive chemical imbalance from all the kind of endorphins and hormones and everything that was going through my body while I was out on the water to completely stopping that and being sedentary and resting and feeling that loss of purpose um and it was it was really really terrifying to from having never felt depressed before never having suffered from clinical depression before to then be in that stage of clinical depression just feeling like a complete failure feeling like it never happened feeling like I would never never be well again feeling like I was never going to smile or laugh again it was very very scary um but I feel really grateful to have gone through that and come through the other side because it's helped me appreciate just how important it is to um to talk about mental health and to preserve our mental health and to um really kind of um acknowledge how important it is to to be very kind of um open and and clear about mental health and and so yeah it's something I feel very passionately about now you know before you'd even said that I was going to sort of touch upon the fact that you you know you you are being so open in terms of positive mental well-being and mental health you know Mm. something that I know that that you feel passionately about is the power that nature has or the ocean has in in terms of supporting positive mental well-being yeah do you think that the discussions around sort of positive mental well-being are happening frequently enough um i think things are changing really really rapidly um more and more the the term mental health is no longer stigmatized i think even if you even you know two or three years ago the term mental health um, felt like a really big deal. It felt like a really scary, um, unknown place. I, I think that's how I saw it anyway. And obviously everyone has their own relationship with the mental health. But I think more and more it's been acknowledged that everybody has mental health. Yeah. It's not just a term that's reserved for people who have psychoses or suffer with depression or anxiety. It's everybody. We all have mental health, just like we all have physical health to protect. And even, you know, a few weeks ago when um, Boris was giving one of his COVID press conferences, he was talking about the importance of going out for exercise every day to protect our mental health and our physical health. And I thought that is phenomenal. How brilliant is it that we can now talk about mental health in almost the same field as physical health because they are so interrelated and they're both so important. In terms of my own 
feelings around nature being a part of our um, mental health. I feel very strongly that nature and natural world is intrinsically part of our mental health. It's not a case of, oh, I feel a bit rubbish, so I'm going to go out into nature. It's trying to reconnect to actually what it means to us to be a part of the natural world. So I feel like as a society, we've become very, very disconnected from, from our natural world and from what it means to be a part of it. And re you know, being in nature is scientifically proven to be beneficial for our, for our mental health. Actually being able to go and spend time there and reconnect to what it means to us to be there. And I think that means actually refinding our love for nature in a personal way. So re-evaluating what it means you know how you feel when you're there rekindling that love with nature so that not only do we want to spend more time there because it's good for our well-being but also we're more likely to protect it as a result because you know people protect what they love but they only love what they know so I think actually reconnecting to nature is is crucial for both of those things my charity is specifically going to be looking at the connection between the two so okay. um, environmentalism and mental health both being around reconnecting to our natural world it sounds very exciting it, that sort of brings me on to a point about sort of passion and purpose and mm. you've had the sort of most incredible adventures I wonder whether you could sort of give advice to those who maybe aren't you know typically sporty or typically athletic that's mm. pretty much me basically um <laughs> where, where do you advise me to start because I fear that my sort of lack of sportiness or lack of athleticness holds me back yeah okay so um these expeditions are very extreme they're not every day and i you know i, I take on a big expedition i try and take one on every year um but the rest of my life is a little bit more normal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um I, I think also you know social media and stuff it, it shows you the the extreme situations but it's very easy to think that that's every day of somebody's life to be perfectly honest my favorite adventures are the ones when it's me and a couple of mates and we either get on our paddle boards and we paddle literally half a mile or a mile down the beach to a deserted spot of the beach with a box full of cake and we sit in the sunshine and we natter or we take our camper vans to the middle of the moors and we go and camp out on the moors overnight or you know we go and camp on a remote beach somewhere the times when I feel really really connected to nature aren't always due to massive physical exertion I think in terms of finding your own adventures, they don't have to be athletically challenging. Um, just try something that feels a little bit kind of exciting, uncomfortable, but not scary. Because the last thing you want to do is push your comfort zone into your panic zone where you then put off adventuring for the rest of your life. Yes. <laughs> Whereas if you can kind of just take a little step and do something that, that feels fun, but also a little bit adventurous, then I think that's the first step. Um, <laughs> well they say adventure starts at home don't they so maybe I need Definitely. to sort of take a trip out to my back garden for a oh yeah <laughs> and, and that kind of mindfulness side of things as well I get so much from being mindful in nature so even like at the moment you know we're, we're on lockdown and we're not supposed to leave our, pro our properties I'm really fortunate that where I am has a garden and I can just sit and watch the birds it's it sounds daft but I can just look at a plant and really focus on the kind of intricacies of the leaves for you know a good couple of minutes and I'll kind of come away from that experience the massive grin thinking oh my gosh that's just a plant in my garden you can really appreciate nature just by 
really focusing on it and being very mindful and grateful for the for its intricacies and its beauty without having to go on massive expeditions and adventures and that sort of sort of brings me back to this idea about self-care because it sounds like you know that's something that you do proactively in order to sort of really focus focus your mind are there any other things that you do in terms of self-care yeah that's a, a really good question actually so since i suffered with depression i've it was this the scariest time of my life and i wouldn't wish it upon anybody and i also there were times when i really didn't think that i was going to get through it mm. and so having come through the other side i'm very 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 careful to make sure that I keep myself as well as possible so I don't get back to that situation because I don't know if I could go through that again mm. um, and so I'm very very um, careful about my sort of self-care routine I've massively kind of cut back the amount of stressful anxiety inducing work that I do and that sometimes includes for me social media so I'm very careful with my social media um, the attention I pay to social media and um, the amount of time I spend on it. And sometimes social media for me is really positive. It's a really lovely way to connect with my community and with, with friends and with people that are passionate as well. But sometimes I find it a bit um, detrimental. So I'm very good at kind of noticing when, when the benefits, are, when it's no longer beneficial for me and taking a step back. Um, I do yoga every morning when I wake up. It's not for everybody, but I try and do at least sort of 20 minutes of yoga every morning and I try and meditate when I can. And I've also got this beautiful pack of cards, which are basically kind of intentions that you can set every day. And it's like a little card that absolutely gorgeous. And each one is like a little kind of characteristic of the sea that it helps you to embody. And they really bring me a lot of um a lot of comfort. Um and I try and exercise every day and I go to bed really early. I go to bed at like like nine o'clock's a late night for me. No, no, it um, sounds perfect, honestly. Yeah. So really, like my sleep is my sleep is my absolute number one priority. Um if I've had, you know, one hour less sleep, I'm I'm a I'm a mess. Sounds like a bit of a boring life to be honest, but no, I, guess, no, honestly, I still have quite a lot of fun. No, because that's I do you know, I think the sleep is one of those ones that's sort of hugely overlooked and as oh, you say yeah. you have this sort of association of being an old woman if you're you know in bed by, nine, <laughs> in bed by 10 but you know I've, I it's one of those things that it, it has such a big impact on how you leave yeah. the next day um so I oh, you know I'm really, really glad that you um you brought that one up yeah I try not to kind of, I try not to put an alarm on in the morning if, if I don't have to be up really early I try and go to bed at a, a good time like and then I find that I wake up naturally at about 6, 6.30. It's so lovely waking up with the sun. I leave my curtains open. I wake up with the sun. And I appreciate that everyone's schedule is very different. And, you know, if I've got early meetings or whatever, or I've got an early train to catch, then it might be different. But um, having at least eight or nine hours sleep a night, um, yeah, like you say, it just means that that next day is manageable. Mm. And it's just so important for me. What would you hope would be the takeaway that people have from your story? Uh, hope, I think. I think with so many of these crises, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel like these are massive issues that we can't do anything about. But what I try to do with all my campaigns is to deliver hope and deliver a positive message that we can all be a part of this and we must all be a part of this. It's not a kind of us against them it's not but we can all play a part in 
positively affecting them we can all play a part in protecting our environment and protecting the animals in our environment and that's not just as individuals in the actions that we take but it's the way we vote it's the companies we support it's the communities we create within our um within our society that protect our local places um we are all very very powerful um, and much more powerful than we ever give ourselves credit for that's something i learned physically in my expeditions but also through my my campaigning is that we see ourselves as small little you know individual beings but that's not the case at all we, we are capable of so much and i think now more than ever we have to release that potential and and really really put everything we have into finding those connections within our within our communities within our natural world and doing everything we can to to protect the places that we love no oh, well it's a beautiful ending i'm so grateful for your time cal really 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 appreciate it thank you so much i hope you enjoyed my conversation with cal i'm so grateful to her for being open and honest about her struggle with her mental health after her record-breaking journey Cal was bang on the money when she spoke about how talking about mental health has gone from something quite unspoken to being more widely embraced and discussed. I don't think we're there yet, but I do hope conversations such as this one go some way towards normalising them. Cal's also inspired me to start doing some adventures of my own. I'll start small camping in my garden. If this episode has inspired you to take on your own adventure, we'd love to hear about it, along with any other thoughts, comments, questions or suggestions for guests we're common ground co on instagram if you'd like to get in touch with cal we'll make sure her details are in the show notes too we're always looking for contributors to write pieces for the common ground collective our platform discussing social and environmental issues if that sounds like you and you're looking for a platform to broadcast your work please do get in touch so until next week it's been a pleasure thank you all so much for listening and see you soon